Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening. As you can see on the screen, we're going to be studying from Genesis chapter 50 momentarily, but I actually want to begin at the very end of Genesis chapter 49. So if you'd be opening up a Bible, Genesis chapter 49, we're going to read one verse there in just a moment and then segue right into Genesis chapter 50. It is great to see everybody tonight. I'm glad that you are here. It's really been just a beautiful first day of March. You can feel that spring is coming on, and that just makes it all the more enjoyable when we're able to come together on a day like today, and we get to give honor and praise to the one who makes beautiful days like this. We're able to let him know how much we're thankful for him through the songs that we sing and the prayers that we offer, and even right now, by giving careful, reverent attention to His Word. I hope you've got Genesis chapter 49 queued up. I want to read that very last verse in the chapter in Genesis 49. This is verse 33. The text says there, When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. If Genesis is the book of beginnings and it is, then what we just read is the beginning of the end of the beginning. Those little introductory details about the death of Jacob, they provide the opening notes for this final chapter of this extraordinary book of the Bible. For nine weeks now, our Bible reading plan for 2020 has taken us on a remarkable journey through this book. This is the book that gives us Just so many famous stories, real, true stories. This is the book of the Bible that gives us the story of, well, the story of the universe, the story of creation. We've seen the story of the flood, the Tower of Babel, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the call of Abraham, the near sacrifice of Isaac, the selling of Joseph off into slavery. Through all of these chapters, we've seen a a pillar of salt. We've seen an ark of gopher wood. We've seen a ladder that reaches up into heaven. We've seen a coat of many colors and we've even seen a talking snake. This book is one of the most colorful and one of the most vivid portions of all of Scripture. And I personally have very much enjoyed revisiting these uh, last couple of months, revisiting the book of Genesis and getting to read from it. In fact, counting this lesson tonight, I have now preached five sermons this year alone from the book of Genesis. And believe me... I wanted to do more, but I decided to exercise some restraint. But now we have come to the penultimate moments of this book. We've come to the end of the book. This week we will read the final three chapters, Genesis 48, 49, and 50, before moving on into the Exodus. The question is, how do you think the Lord is going to wrap this book up? How do you think He's going to bring to a conclusion this amazing section of Scripture before jumping 400 years in history to tell us the story of the Exodus. You know, I would think that based on all of the exciting and thrilling and captivating material that exists in those first 40 plus chapters, I would kind of tend to expect that this book's going to conclude with a bang. It's going to conclude with something epic, something monumental, something really, really memorable. And yet you've ever read Genesis chapter 50, epic and monumental are probably not the adjectives that you would use to describe this chapter. In fact, much of the material in Genesis chapter 50 kind of seems like those thrown together deleted scenes 
Sometimes the movie studios will throw on a DVD to make it seem like it's got some bonus material on it. Think about it. Those verses that we just read at the beginning of the chapter, they speak there of the, of the death and the grief and the ensuing funeral for Jacob. Not a lot of really exciting stuff there. The end of the chapter actually gives a similarly dull detail about the death and even the funeral of Joseph. And then in between those two funeral stories, we get this extra scene between Joseph and his brothers that in some ways kind of feels like a repeat of some of the previous encounters that Joseph had had with his brothers. And so, spoiler alert this evening, this is not the most exciting chapter in the book of Genesis. But having said that, I still believe it's helpful. There's not anything in the Bible that's there just as, as filler. God didn't look down when He had Genesis written and say, hmm, got 49 chapters there, and uh, well, I'd like to get it to a nice round, even number. Let's see if we can get it to 50. So let's see if we can throw in another chapter's worth of information and get it all the way there. No. No, all Scripture is profitable, 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us. And I believe that God does indeed, He wants us to profit from this material. And I believe this evening, if we will pay attention to that character in the story, who really has kind of been the focal point for the last quarter of the book of Genesis, the guy named Joseph, then I believe we will gain some things that will help us in our walk with God, and will help us to know better how to please Him. Tonight I do want us to read through Genesis chapter 50. I've enjoyed getting to pick out some of these more obscure chapters from Genesis and to preach from. But I'd like for us to look at Genesis chapter 50. And let's see if we can learn from Joseph one more time before bringing to an end this book of beginnings. As I've already indicated, the chapter kind of breaks down kind of nicely into three main sections. The first of which is in these first 14 verses where we learn some things from Joseph. First of all... At the death of his father. I already read there at the end of 49 about how his father's passed away. Read verse 1 again. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. And so the physicians embalmed Israel. It is interesting to note that by my count, this is the fifth different time, the fifth different occasion that it's recorded in Genesis that Joseph weeps and that he cries. Chapter 42 he cried, chapter 43 he cried, chapter 45 he cried, chapter 46 he cried, and in every single one of those instances, including this one, Joseph is crying over someone else. He's not crying over his own circumstances. He's not crying over sorry old me. He's not whining. He's not pouting, no. He's crying over others. And you need to know and you need to understand, even though we only got a couple of verses here at the beginning, these couple of verses that describe Joseph and him weeping over his father, I think this is intended to be a very tender scene. Remember that Jacob was promised in chapter 46 and verse 4 that your son will close your eyes in death. And now here, God's Word is coming to pass exactly as He had promised. Somebody would maybe have questions and ask about this mummification that's being described there in verse 2. There's actually only two instances that I'm aware of mummification being described in the Bible, and both of them happen right here in this chapter in Genesis chapter 50. Now, the Egyptian people, they mummified their dead. Why? Well, the Egyptians mummified the dead because they believed that the body, the physical body, 
needed to be preserved as perfectly intact as possible so that that body could then be able to enjoy the afterlife. That you need your body to be all intact, to be able to do all the fun stuff that you can do in the great beyond. Go hunting and fishing and running around and all the other kinds of fun stuff that they believed in as far as the idea of an afterlife. But I do not believe that that is what Joseph has in mind here when he commands for his father to be mummified. This seems to have served, in Joseph's case, to be a very practical purpose to have his father mummified. And what is that? I believe it's because he didn't want his father's body to decompose during this really long trip back home. And it was a long way back to Canaan to where they would go. Estimated to be somewhere around 400 miles. And they're not doing that with the benefit of a plane or even a car. We're going to be walking probably a big chunk of that. And so Jacob is embalmed. Verse 3 now. Forty days were required for that embalming. For that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. So I think here we've got 40 days of preparing the body. And then there's this additional 30 days of the mourning by the Egyptians. Add it all together, there's your 70 days. I think that says something about what a respected individual Joseph was. What an influential, what a prominent figure he had become in Egypt. That now here all of the Egyptian people, they are mourning with him for over a whole month over his father's death. Verse 4, And when the days of weeping for him were past... Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh and say... Let's just stop right there for a moment. We might be wondering, Joseph has got a message for Pharaoh, but instead of just saying it directly to Pharaoh, he's sending it through some people. Please go tell this message to Pharaoh. We might be wondering, why didn't he just go tell Pharaoh himself? Joseph is second in command in the country. Why wouldn't he just go and talk to him face to face? And the answer is, not entirely sure. One commentator seemed to recommend that maybe there was a tradition at that time that during time of grief and time of mourning, you didn't go and talk to the king. You just didn't have that opportunity. You were supposed to focus on mourning and being with your family and grieving over the loss of that loved one. Whatever the reason was, there's a message that needs to be sent to Pharaoh. And the message is this, verse 5. Joseph sends this message. He says, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die. And in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan... There you shall bury me. Now therefore, here's Joseph's request. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. Once again, we get this reminder. And I think there are several reminders of this all throughout Genesis, these last chapters of Genesis. We get this reminder that the people of God, the people of Israel, they don't belong in Egypt. Now they're living there. That's where they are right now. And God was okay with them being there right now because of the famine that had existed and all the circumstances with that. But this isn't the land that God had promised them. Egypt is not that land. This is not where they belong. And Joseph realizes that there's going to be a time we need to go back to Canaan. And in fact, right now is one of those occasions because my father needs to be taken back to be buried there and then I will return. Verse 6 picks up. And Pharaoh answered him, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh and the elders of his household and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household. Wow! I'd like to know what the actual math was on this. What a procession 
of distinguished and important people. Think about this maybe in a comparison to today. When an important world figure passes away, what do we do? Well, lots of times we put the vice president on a plane and we send him over to wherever that's happening and going to send him over there to show respect on behalf of our country. Maybe if it's a super important person, maybe the president will carve out time and he'll fly over there to show his respect. That's just a way of showing honor and giving respect to those people. And so here's all of these very important figures and dignitaries. They are part of that caravan. There is an exception, though. All the people that do go with them, verse 8 continues on, only their children and their flocks and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. The next time that we read about flocks and herds and children in Goshen, Pharaoh is going to be saying, you can't take them with you. Because at that time, we'll have a different Pharaoh on the throne. He's going to be presenting opposition to the Israelites going back into that promised land. That's a good note to think about as you begin to read Exodus. Verse 9 now. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. I take that the use of those terms, chariots and horsemen and great company... I see those as being very intentional on the part of the author. We believe and understand that Moses is the author of this and he's also the author of Exodus. I think Moses is using those kinds of terms. Chariots, horsemen. Hey, I I remember a story about some chariots and some horsemen and a big great company and something happening to them. And you know what? That's what happens in the sequel. That's what's going to happen in the books of Exodus. We're going to think about that and be reminded of that when that Red Sea crossing is taking place. Moses is preparing his readers for what's going to come next. Verse 10 now. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And Joseph made a mourning for his father for seven days. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, when they saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore that place was named Abel Mizram. And it is beyond the Jordan. This threshing floor here would have been a place that would have been on on high ground of a higher altitude, probably maybe somewhere slightly outside of the village. It would be somewhere on a higher altitude so that when you went there to actually thresh your grain, it would be able to catch the breeze that would be in the air. The breeze would be more prevalent in a higher altitude place. And that wheat, as you shake it, it the wheat could then be separated from the chaff. And so here they are on this high, flat place, which is actually an ideal location as well to set a coffin down. And for these funeral ceremonies to take place, all of the pomp and circumstance that would have went on with the funeral rites of that time. And of course that location would mean that everybody else in the village, they could look up to the high spot there and they could see, oh, look what's going on up there. There's a funeral going on up there. And look at all those people. Look at their reaction. In fact, you can hear their reaction. The wailing and the lamenting of all of these people. There's this outpouring of grief and it ends up having an effect on the locals there, even on the Canaanites there. Verse 12 continues on. Verse 12, Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him, as carried Jacob, to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephraim the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. It seems like maybe that 
all of these Egyptians that came down in the caravan, they all came down initially, but then maybe after that week of mourning, it seems like maybe the boys, the sons of Jacob, they then carried their father to that cave, that, that final resting place, which actually is actually the only piece of ground that that family of Abraham ever actually owned in Canaan. That is, until God later, by the hand of Joshua, would then start giving the land over to the descendants of Abraham. Verse 14 finishes this section. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Now, that's a lot of discussion about a man's funeral. You know, in reality, that really could have just been summarized all in like one verse. Jacob died and they buried him in Canaan. Moving on. That could have been really quick. Could have made this chapter a whole lot shorter. But it seems to me that there is something here that God, God maybe wants us to see through Joseph and something that He wants us to learn. And I think what He wants us to learn here is maybe a little, maybe kind of common sense sort of lesson about grief. That grief is a normal, natural part of life. When loved ones die, that is a wrenching experience. It brings pain. It brings sorrow. It brings grief into our hearts and into our lives. And I realize that even though we as believers, we do not grieve as those who have no hope, 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says. The truth of the matter is, death is still our enemy. And so when death robs us of the people that we love and that we hold so dear, then I believe that grief is a very natural, it is a very normal, it is a very acceptable response to that pain, to that loss. And that's what Joseph is showing us here in a very practical sort of way. Think about this. We've got weeks. We've actually got months of grieving and crying and mourning going on. It just hurts Joseph. It hurts his family. And it is true still for us. It hurts to lose the people that we love. And I think about all of that, particularly in light of the things that I sometimes hear people say about, about funerals and about the various customs and traditions that we have that go along with funerals. You know, as the people of God, we know and we understand that a funeral is not the most important thing. And we know as well that when we go to a funeral, that that body that's lying in that casket, that that is not our loved one. We understand that that is just a shell. And we know as well that what is most important is that our loved one, they have stepped into eternity. And they are awaiting the final judgment where they will stand before the Lord. So our only concern is were they prepared for that moment. And we understand about all of that. But as a result of that understanding, I think sometimes, and I've heard Christians, just kind of be a little negative about funerals and about things that go along with the the death and the dying process and the things that happen in the grief process. I've heard people say things like, all oh, this funerals, it's all just a bunch of formalities and, I mean, we just do it because we have to. I've heard people say, you know, I don't even want a funeral when I die. And I'm not telling you you have to have a funeral. But I've heard people say that because they just, you just don't see the value in having a funeral. What, what good is that? I've heard people say as well that Christians, Christians don't need to get all caught up in all the grief and all the things that go along with a funeral when it's someone who dies in the Lord. You shouldn't be all sad about that. And yet despite all the things that we sometimes hear and sometimes say, I'm looking here at Genesis chapter 50, and I'm watching 14 verses 
talk about the grieving process and the funeral arrangements and the last words of this dying man. And it's kind of hard for me to make the case that God just looks at that and He thinks all of that's just silly. It's hard for me to think that God looks down at all of that after including all of that in His Word and God just thinks, you know, that's just kind of useless. That has no place in the life of a believer. It's kind of hard for me to think that God looks at it that way. If God has no interest in funerals, if God sees no value in having them and the grieving process that goes along with that, well, then He sure could have fooled me. Because He devotes an awful lot of real estate, not just here in Genesis chapter 50, but a lot of real estate all throughout the Bible to describe extended weeping and the things that go along when life is lost. Maybe what we ought to be reminded of, that it is the Lord who gave us the capacity to cry. And maybe we ought to be reminded as well that it is the Lord who wept at the tomb of His friend Lazarus who had died. And the Lord seems to know in His great wisdom that sometimes we need a little bit of help in being able to say goodbye to the people that we love. And so there is value, I believe, in these kinds of events. They provide for us a a moment in time or an extended moment in time where those who are still left, those who remain, those who are alive, it gives us the time to process that and to weep and to mourn. And I want to say to you tonight that that is appropriate and that is right. It is God's way of helping us to cope with that loss. You need, Are you maybe somebody who needs to grieve over the loss of a loved one? Maybe you need more than just the standard week or two after the death and after the funeral. Maybe you need months. Maybe you need years. You take that time. You take all you need of that time. Don't let it cripple your walk with God. Don't don't allow that to happen. But you allow that grief to work. You allow that to come out. Let God do what He's able to do in all of that. That's a normal and natural part of life. God knows that. And Joseph in Genesis chapter 50 is showing us that. And then the very next thing that happens in Genesis 50 is Joseph shows us something about forgiveness in this encounter that he has with his brothers once again. Pick up in verse 15 now. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. What an ugly thing for them to think about Joseph. It's just sad. You know, they're the ones who had all these evil thoughts and all these evil plans and acted and did all these evil things. And now they're just projecting all of that onto their brother Joseph. That's just sorry. Verse 16. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Now, pardon my skepticism, but since Jacob's family has clearly distinguished themselves as being just professional liars constantly throughout the book of Genesis, I can't help but wonder, did daddy actually tell them to give this message to Joseph? Did daddy actually say all that stuff in verse 17? Or are these boys possibly scared to death? They're just quaking in their boots. 
And so now they're trying to make something up on the spur of the moment to try and protect themselves. I'm not entirely sure. I can't say with any kind of certainty. But I do think there's sufficient reason for us to maybe question what's going on here. Now, I do believe that these brothers, prior to this, they have shown repentance. If you've read chapter 44, I think there's evidence there that they have repented. But there is also something to be said here in chapter 50 for them making a formal, even verbal request for forgiveness. You know, even if I'm skeptical of whether or not their father actually gave this command before he died, I can actually, if nothing else, I can appreciate the language that they're using in this request. Look at the language again. Forgive the transgressions of your brothers. Forgive their sin. Those are strong terms. That's criminal language. That's the language of rebellion. These brothers are not softening in some way the terrible things that they've done in the past. They do not say, now Joseph, please forgive us of our mistakes. They do not say, now Joseph, that was a long time ago when we were young, so please forgive and overlook our lapse of judgment, our our youthful folly. No. No, they say, we sinned and we did evil unto you. And the text says that Joseph wept when they spoke these things to him. That says something to me, that there's just something in the heart of Joseph that just doesn't even expect to hear this kind of talk coming out of his brother's mouth. He's caught completely off guard. In fact, he didn't even really know what to say in this moment. He's just floored by them bringing this up, suggesting that maybe he hasn't forgiven them. Because really, this is the furthest thing from Joseph's mind, and yet it is the first thing on their mind. Look in verse 18. In verse 18, His brothers also came and they fell down before Him and they said, Behold, we are your servants. But probably the better rendering of that is the word slave. We are your slaves, they say. Verse 19, But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and for your little ones. Thus He comforted them and spoke kindly to them. If you didn't have just tremendous respect for Joseph prior to this, surely you do now. This is just incredible what he says here. This is amazing Forgiveness. This is Joseph being Joseph all over again. While these boys are all worried about their brother seeking revenge on them, don't you love Joseph's response there in verse 19? Joseph says, I couldn't do that. There's no way I could ever do that. That's not my job. That's not my place. He says, that's God's job. Romans 12, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Joseph says, that's not my place. I can't do that. I'm going to leave the writings of personal wrongs to the Lord. I'm not going to get involved in that. That's not my domain. I'm just going to keep on trying to do what's right. I can't have any part in that revenge and retaliation stuff. By the way, isn't it interesting that the book of Genesis opens in chapter 3 with the serpent promising Eve, hey, you can become as God. You can be like God. You can be as God. And now here the book is closing with somebody else, Joseph saying, 
I don't want to try to be God. I don't want to presume to act like I can somehow stand in His place. That's not my place. And then there's that wonderful statement in verse 20. It's quoted often in various sermons and in different ways. When he says that what you meant for evil, God used for good. So much could be said there about how the providence of God works. But I like the fact that Joseph does not excuse their bad behavior. He still calls it evil. Hey, what you did, it was evil. And I'm not just brushing that under the carpet. What you did, it was evil. But what he goes on to say is, he says, you know what? God overrode your evil. He overrode your bad intentions and He made something wonderful and amazing come to pass. In all of that, Joseph is just typifying the qualities that we have grown to love since chapter 39. He's forgiving. He's caring. He's looking out for others. Seems like the last person he's always concerned about is himself. He has no concern for seeking out vengeance. i got to go out and get my pound of flesh from them. That's, that's not Joseph's M.O. And I'll tell you this, if Joseph's story concluded right there at the end of verse 21, I'd be more than satisfied with that ending. What Joseph is showing us in all of this, in this section of Genesis chapter 50, is that forgiveness is a trust issue. You know, we read this account, we read what these boys say, and we read, you know, kind of how they formulate their words here and what they say to Joseph here. And we come away from that and we think, what is wrong with these guys? Joseph has done everything that he possibly could do to demonstrate and to make sure that they see with 100% clarity that he has forgiven them. Think about it. He kissed you. He wept over you. He brought you and your family and your livestock. He brought all of that to Egypt. He has provided for you. Time and time again, He has went out of His way to show you that you are forgiven. Boys, how can you possibly question the sincerity of His forgiveness? And the answer is, they didn't trust Him. They did not believe their brother when He said, you're forgiven. All the gracious things that He had done to them. It only caused them to just have more suspicion. It only caused them to question His motives even more. He can't really be forgiving us of what we've done. For 17 years, do the math! For 17 years they were carrying that around in the back of their mind. He hasn't really forgiven us. You know, He didn't do anything before to us because, well, because Daddy was still alive. He wasn't going to do anything to us while Dad was still alive. Dad's gone now. And I know what Joseph's going to do. Joseph's going to show his true colors. Now he's really going to show what he's all about. As if, as if the guy who was the second in command in all of Egypt, as if he couldn't have engineered vengeance and got rid of all, every single one of these brothers without anybody ever knowing anything, he could have absolutely done that if he had wanted to. But he didn't. Instead, for 17 years, Joseph wore himself out to show that his forgiveness to his brothers, that it was genuine, and it was sincere, and it was true. And still his brothers at the end of the day said, we just don't believe you. We don't believe you when you say that you've forgiven us. We don't really trust that you could actually forgive us of what we've done. Does any of that sound familiar? Have you ever heard Christians actually, let me take that back, have maybe you as a Christian, Have you ever entertained those same thoughts about God's forgiveness for you? I hear it all the time. I have people say things to me all the time. Like, here's a Christian who 
messed up, done something wrong, sinned, and they seek God's forgiveness, they've repented as best as they know that they can, they've confessed that before God, they've prayed to God, they've made that known to their brothers and sisters, and then after all of that, they still say, I'm just not sure that God's forgiven me. I, I, I just can't imagine that God would forgive someone like me, the things that I've done. I just don't feel forgiven. It's just hard for me to believe that God would forgive me for the things that I have done, the terrible things that I've done against Him. If that is you this evening, stop it. Stop it. Stop sounding like Joseph's brothers who doubted His forgiveness when it was absolutely exercised and it was reinforced time and time and time again. What you need to do, brother or sister, is you need to trust God more. When the Lord says you are forgiven, guess what? You are forgiven. Trust the Lord and take Him at His word. Forgiveness only works when there is trust that the grantor of that forgiveness, I'm trusting that He's going to keep His word. And when you're talking about God, you can be absolutely certain He's going to keep His word. Which brings us to this last little paragraph of this chapter in the last paragraph of this great book, where we find Joseph teaching us one final lesson, and he's teaching us this lesson right here on his own deathbed. Verse 22, So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house, and Joseph lived 110 years. If the math is correct, Joseph came to Egypt at the age of 17, which means that 93 years of his life was spent in Egypt. And if my math is correct as well, the last 51 years of his life, he got to spend that with his family who he had brought to Egypt. And that certainly is the blessings of God. Verse 23 now. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. And the children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. Now, I'm not really sure how all of this worked and all the details of all of this, but you might remember that Jacob ends up adopting Manasseh and Ephraim as his own children back in chapter 48. And now it seems that Joseph is adopting Manasseh's children as his own, which might make us question, well, well why didn't he also adopt Ephraim's children? Because those would have been his grandchildren. Why didn't he adopt them? The answer is, don't know. Don't have a clue about all of that. But notice what he says to them. This is what we really want to notice. Notice what Joseph says to those children, to his brothers. Verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that He swore to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall, you will carry up my bones from here. I want you to notice and I want you to hear the faith that is ringing out one more time as Joseph is about to leave this earth. The confidence as he speaks here. The confidence that says, brothers, sons, grandsons, grandsons, granddaughters and daughters, God is going to keep His promises. God promised that land to our forefathers, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And that's the land where we belong. And Joseph says with 100% certainty, God's going to come and He's going to take us home. Not maybe, 
Not sorta, not I kinda hope and kinda, you know, really sweating and really hoping that he'll do that. No. God will do that. The last words that Genesis records of Joseph are words that essentially say, I am trusting God. In fact, if you'll hold your place here in Genesis chapter 50, look at a verse in Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, that is that famous chapter that we know as the the hall of faith. All of these great people from the Old Testament who demonstrated and exercised great faith and trust in God. Think of all the episodes in Joseph's life that you probably would be inclined to call attention to as saying, man, now that is great faith. Look at that guy. Look at his example. Look at what he did in those circumstances. And yet, notice in Hebrews chapter 11, the one event that the Hebrew writer chooses to call attention to as being a great example of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22. Hebrews 11, verse 22, the writer says there, By faith Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. The Hebrew writer thought, at least in his estimation, that one of the most powerful things that Joseph ever did was when he was on his deathbed, he made a profound statement of tremendous faith. So as I turn back to Genesis chapter 50, the story of Genesis concludes in verse 26 with these words, Genesis 50 verse 26. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin... In Egypt. You might be wondering, what are we supposed to get out of this? Certainly I could say something about the trust that Joseph showed in those final statements that he made, but what I'd really like to call attention to is that all of that just points to the fact that there is no excuse for not being faithful all the way to death. If ever there was a guy, not counting Jesus Christ, if ever there was a person in the Bible story who we would think, man, that guy maybe does have an excuse for giving up on the Lord and just kind of chucking this whole faith in God thing, we'd probably be inclined to think Joseph might be that guy. Think of all that he endured. He had to endure the ridicule and the scorn and the hatred and the anger of his brothers. That's why he was still at home. That then led to being thrown down in the bottom of a pit. And that's actually before they actually talked themselves out of killing him. Then he gets sold off in the pit. He doesn't even know where he's going. Gets ultimately taken to Egypt. He's hundreds of miles from home. He's still a kid. Would have been real easy for Joseph to just say, forget this following God thing. I'm just going to live like an Egyptian. Walk like an Egyptian. Just do what the Egyptians do. And yet Joseph remained faithful through all of that. He gets harassed on the job in Potiphar's house. That then leads to him getting thrown in jail for an extended period of time. Having done nothing, done nothing wrong. Would have been real easy for Joseph to say, forget this, I'm done, I'm not doing this anymore. Yet he continues to faithfully serve the Lord. He rises to prominence in Egypt. He attains a position where again, the temptation would have been there to, to use his power for his own gain, for his own benefit, and yet Joseph remains faithful to the Lord through it all. When he's brought face to face with his brothers, these people who had done him so wrong, so terribly, the temptation had to be strong. Just give them what they had given to him. Yet once again, Joseph remains faithful through it all. 
And now here at the end of his life, 110 years, through all of those trials, through all of those tribulations, through all of those difficulties, here is Joseph making a proclamation of faith as he breathes his last breath. That's powerful to me. And that ought to say something to us. I know that all of us have our own trials and tribulations and difficulties that we have to endure and that we have to wrestle with in this life. I would dare say that none of us even begin to compare with the problems that Joseph had to face in his life. What excuse would any of us ever have to stand before God in judgment and say, but God, I had to. But Lord, you lit this. But God, you don't under. There's nothing we can say. God in His goodness, and in His care, and in His love, and in His grace, He has provided us with every tool, everything that we need to remain faithful to Him even amidst the storms of this life. In fact, what the Bible teaches in James chapter 1 and a host of other places is that those trials and those tribulations and those difficulties, those things are designed to make us better, to make us stronger to make us more well-rounded disciples and servants of the Lord. And don't we see that in Joseph's life? Don't we see the growth and the maturity that's taken place in this young man who now becomes this old man, this old man who's continuing to serve God? I think that's a powerful way, not only to end Genesis chapter 50, that's a powerful way to end the book of Genesis and to whet our appetites for the book of Exodus. I'm excited to begin reading the book of Exodus later this week. And I'm excited to probably preach a sermon or two from the book of Exodus in the next month or two as well. But I hope you'll keep reading your Bible. And I hope you'll keep watching God work through it all. I brought a lot of attention to Joseph in these studies. Brought attention to some of the other characters. But don't ever forget, when we're reading these stories, who's the real hero? Who's the real lead actor, the real star here? It's God. He's the one that's making all of this happen. He's the one who's helping us to really be able to see the good that can come even from difficulty and adversity. Perhaps there's somebody here this evening who is not a Christian. I want to draw your attention here to that second point that we talked about, about how forgiveness, it demands and it requires trust. In fact, that's really the beginning step in God's plan of salvation. That we would place our faith and our trust in Him. Not only that He exists and that He is, but furthermore, that what He says, that it is true. And I believe it. And the promises that He has made, I believe those with every fiber of my being, and I now want to act upon it. Will you allow that trust to move you this evening to become a child of God? If you're not a Christian, we'd love to help you tonight to confess your faith in Jesus as God's Son, to repent, turn away from sin, turn to God. And then this evening to be buried with Jesus in baptism. We've got a pool of water right back there. And it is available at every hour of the day essentially so that we can have an opportunity to help someone become obedient to Christ. Can we help you to do that tonight? If you are a child of God, but maybe maybe this last thing here is what you've been struggling with. You've not been faithful. You're not dead, thankfully. But if something doesn't change... You could be in a position where you're going to be standing before the Lord trying to make excuses for your unfaithfulness to Him. Let's let's fix that tonight. 
Maybe that's something you just correct between you and the Lord right there in your pew. You talk to Him personally and take whatever steps need to be taken. Maybe you want to call upon the rest of us, your brothers and sisters here at Lakeside, to pray with you, talk with you, provide a shoulder to lean on, encourage you, and help you to serve the Lord in a better way. Whatever your need may be, we're here for you. You just need to make it known by coming to the front while we stand and while we sing.